Wisdom and compassion are the twin pillars of all meditation practice. Sometimes they are likened to being the two wings of a bird, supporting each other, enhancing and deepening each other. When the Buddha was asked whether it would be true to say that a part of our practice is for the development of loving kindness and compassion, he answered no. He said it would be true to say that the whole of our practice is for the development of loving kindness and compassion. If you delve into the body of some of the ancient Buddhist stories that are very central to this tradition, what you meet within that realm of those stories is the call to discover the depth of compassion that is possible for each of us. You read the stories of the immense and great courage and boundless generosity and love which are often said to be at the heart of the Bodhisattva, of one who is truly dedicated to bringing about the end of suffering. And the stories that in this, this tradition tell of the lives of Bodhisattva, who, who in countless different places and times, really carry within them that enduring commitment to relieving suffering without conditions. And these stories, although they you know, they need not necessarily take them literally, they are, I think, an invitation for us to reflect inwardly, to discover how encompassing our own hearts can be, what depths of wisdom are balanced of patience, of forgiveness, we are able to find within our own hearts and minds. These stories of commitment, these stories of dedication to bring about the end of suffering, of course, don't belong only in the Buddhist tradition. You see, in every great spiritual tradition, this body of literature, this body of teaching, the body of stories, is really that encouragement to learn how to embody wisdom, how to embody an understanding of non-separateness, how to embody a commitment to healing suffering. And all of the stories have a purpose, and their purpose is certainly not to lead us to be lost in admiration or envy, but they are really an invitation to explore our own story, an encouragement for us to see that our capacity to create suffering and our capacity to ease suffering really live side by side in our own hearts. It's part of our human heritage, our human story. 
But we also have the capacity for awareness, for honesty, for reflection, for investigation. And it is that capacity that really liberates us to choose how we engage with the world. It is that capacity for awareness that liberates us to follow a path in our lives. We see we have that great blessing, that great, great gift of not being driven in our lives just by instinct or by blind reaction. Although sometimes I do feel that our capacity for awareness often feels like a mixed blessing. Sometimes we treasure it and sometimes it can feel almost like occur because it's our capacity for awareness that really illuminates everything within ourselves it illuminates all the forces all the powers that move us in our life our speech our actions our choices and sometimes awareness illuminates and mirrors the powerful forces of fear and anger and greed and self-protection and it can sometimes feel really uncomfortable. It feels often or sometimes at least not always like good news. But awareness also illuminates the equally powerful sometimes surprising qualities of forgiveness and compassion and patience and kindness that are also live within our own hearts and minds. I think meditation really keeps bringing us back to an understanding that each one of us is ultimately asked to make an inner journey to really sense how it is that we want to live, what we're dedicated to. Not just for ourselves, but to see that what we are dedicated to within our own lives and hearts also impacts upon how we contribute to or bring about an end to suffering in the world around us. Milarepa, great Indian yogi, once said that long accustomed to contemplating compassion, I have forgotten all difference between self and other. I think in that inner journey of reflection and investigation, It doesn't mean that we suddenly decide that we're supposed to go out and do heroic deeds, you know, and lay down our lives for others or change the world. But I think a journey of investigation, honest reflection, really does ask us to look at how we're able to change our world of this moment. This is to look at how we hold ourselves, 
how we hold our own inner life, what kind of thoughts, what kind of feelings run through us, because the thoughts and the feelings that run through us, they are of course the forerunners of our words and our actions and our way of relating to the person who's right in front of us. We are not helpless in our life. I think if anything, if awareness teaches us anything at all, is that we are really not helpless. We are not entirely victims of our past or our history or our conditioning. And even if we see something, you know, a particular tendency or uh, area of conditioning has a hugely long history in our, in our life, awareness also teaches us it doesn't mean it has an equally long future. That our capacity to change our world of the moment really lies within our awareness of the moment. We begin to see that we can choose what path we follow in our lives. We can choose what gives meaning and depth to the fabric of our lives. And in a way, I often think that this really is very heroic. And it takes immense courage to turn towards suffering and conflict rather than to flee from it. And it takes an immense steadiness, inner steadiness and dedication to be willing to turn towards the people that we struggle with in our lives with a, a willingness to understand and to end the division. I think it takes a great courage sometimes to turn towards the, the dark rooms in our own hearts and minds where anger and resentment and greed and fear can live. It truly takes immense courage to open to the reality of the countless people in our world who suffer a, a daily diet of violence or oppression or terror, alienation. There's a lot of other things we could do rather than open or rather than turn towards rather than find the willingness to understand you know we could we can avoid we can distract ourselves we can pretend we can fantasize we can indulge in anything that kind of keeps the keeps life at a distance but even these responses don't ask for blame, they also ask for compassion. Because even those responses of fear are in truth part of the tapestry of sorrow and pain. Some years ago, someone gave me a gift of a remarkable book called Whispered Prayers. And it's a book image through stories and pictures, the life of about 30 different Tibetans is kind of revealed 
And in this book, these different Tibetan people, they tell each of their own stories. And in a way, they're very ordinary people. You know, there's young people, old people, children, monks, nuns, grandmothers. And each of them, just in a couple of paragraphs, a few words, really, speaks of the kind of inhuman, unthinkable atrocities they have endured in their lives, of imprisonment, of torture, of imposed sterilization, of loss of their families, of their homes. And what really struck me when I read these remarkable stories was a couple of things, of course, really stood out. One was the very obvious, very evident depths of pain and sorrow they had been through, and none of them, these people, were particularly exceptional people. And yet they were all exceptional because each one of them had been through what seemed like almost unending pain and loss. The other thing that really stood out for me in the way that these people told their story was that their hearts were in some remarkable way really intact. Certainly they hurt, they wept, they grieved in their stories. And yet, throughout them, there was this remarkable dignity and fortitude and compassion and a remarkable generosity. And what was exceptional was they didn't see that as exceptional. It's sort of a simple path and, uh, and a faith, almost as if there was no other choice except compassion in the face of suffering and in the face of pain. One nun, she was telling a story and she told about how she was arrested and imprisoned for putting up a poster. And she said, during the interrogations which took place twice a week, I was beaten and tortured. And to stay alive, I meditated on peace and nonviolence every possible moment I could. I tried my hardest to think of peace for all humankind. I did not feel particularly sad or angry. If the police noticed my lips moving, they told me to stop or I would be punished further. So I whispered my prayers secretly, barely moving my lips at all. A group of us celebrated the Dalai Lama's birthday in prison by singing traditional Tibetan songs. As punishment, they put me in an ice house and removed my clothing for two days. Then the beatings resumed and went on and on for weeks. My prayers for peace also went on and on with even greater intensity. It struck me in all of the stories that he recounted in this book, or it was I found very stunning, was really the remarkable absence of blame and rage and despair or the wish for retaliation. More what shone through was an understanding 
and understanding how the jailers had acted out of ignorance and were a prisoner of their own ignorance. We mostly are unlikely to find ourselves in situations of such deprivation or anguish. I think we will all find ourselves in situations many times in our life and in many moments we face where we are see the choice lying in front of us about whether we follow a pathway of anger and greed and hatred and fear or whether we follow a pathway of generosity and compassion and understanding. Compassion is not a future ideal or destination. I think it really is in our capacity to hold and to meet the suffering in this moment. It's about how we are present in this moment. Sometimes it's said that if you really want to know about your past, you should look at your mind now. And if you really want to know about your future, you should look at your mind now. And cultivating compassion really is a practice of caring for this mind and heart now. Compassion doesn't arise because we want to be compassionate. It's not that mechanical, not that easy to manufacture. It's really cultivated inwardly, really based upon mindfulness and understanding. And in that sense, it's a very personal exploration. No one can be mindful for us. No one can deliver understanding to us. No one can deliver to us an understanding of what genuine empathy is or tell us or convince us of the worth of compassion. I think part of the journey of mindfulness as we've seen here over these days really lies in our willingness to attend so closely to the rhythms of our own hearts and minds to acknowledge how they are the forerunner of every single engagement, every word, every act. Compassion is also not, I think, not a feeling. It's really something much more alive than that. I think compassion is really about how we engage with our life at the moment, how we receive our world at the moment. A willingness to receive with responsiveness and care and sensitivity. The commitment to relieving suffering. I think in that there's an understanding that there's nothing, no word, no act that is unimportant or irrelevant. Because each of us in every moment makes an impact upon the world just as we are impacted by the world. And I feel we do come to understand that really caring for others is caring for ourselves. 
and learning to care for ourselves with integrity is also learning to care for others. When we, I think, sometimes look at meditation, I think sometimes it looks like a kind of a self-absorbed activity. We focus inwardly, we learn to meet our own demons and shadows, we try to find in ourselves a greater sense of well-being and personal happiness. And I think to some extent that's meditation really is a very personal exploration. But what is it that we meet in that inner exploration? And most of us see what we meet is a deepening understanding of the causes of suffering and the way to end suffering. We see in our own inner journey the ways that we can be so lost in resentment or anger or judgment or indifference. And we really see clearly that the result of being lost is pain. I don't think anyone has a different experience of that. And I think if we all did an experiment here together and decided we were going to have, you know, a good, dedicated, 45-minute bout of self-judgment and hatred and judgments of others, you know, I doubt that anybody in this room would, you know, suddenly come out of the end of that and say that they felt much lighter and happier and more refreshed and more connected. It's the same for all of us. It's painful. It's suffering. We also see that the end of suffering really doesn't come from shouting at ourselves or from blaming or from trying to fix everything or setting off lots of resolves about how different we're going to be next time. But I think we also begin to see in our practice and begin to understand what ends suffering. And then we begin to appreciate more and more deeply the the blessings of caring, of forgiveness, of tolerance, of patience, of acceptance and generosity. And we learn these lessons again and again. And more and more we come to understand that in meeting our world, in meeting the world of our mind, our heart, in truth we are meeting the world of all minds and all hearts. What really is suffering within ourselves also release suffering in all places and all moments. Sometimes I think it's really good to question this belief we have that somehow our mind is so special or so unique or so different than anybody else's mind or heart. And then as people talk in meditation, uh, in retreats as if somehow, you know, they've got the worst mind and heart in the world, you know, more shameful than everybody else's. You know, if anybody was really willing to volunteer to come up here and speak their mind for a whole sitting, you know, 
over the PA, you know, speak every thought that arose. You know, most people wouldn't do that, wouldn't be willing to do that, because they think, oh God, everybody would be so horrified, you know, or appalled. It's actually not true, is it? Everybody else would sit there and say, oh yeah, I know, <laughs> yeah, I've been there, yeah, oh yes, I've heard that one before, you know. It's really not so unique or so more shameful or so different. But we also see we actually can really, in a way, solve the dilemmas or the conflicts of another. This is they really can't always ease our conflicts or dilemmas. But we learn. We learn that there is a path out of suffering. And certainly it starts with awareness. It certainly starts with our capacity to see the moment fully and a way to change the moment. The Buddha once said, the thought manifests as the word and the word manifests as the deed. The deed develops into habit and habit hardens into character. So watch the thought and its ways with care and let it spring from love, born out of concern for all beings. And as we sit with ourselves, we can't help but appreciate the power of our thought. Probably nothing more powerful in this world than thought. I mean, certainly the acts and the creations of the greatest harm and violence, you know, it started with a thought. This is the greatest acts of healing and transformation also started with a thought. We see how our thoughts impact on our bodies, how our, how our thoughts get expressed in our words, our acts. Sometimes we just experience the energetic power of our thoughts or the way they shape our minds and hearts. When we listen to ourselves, we see more and more that the causes of joy and the causes of sorrow find their beginnings in our own hearts and minds. And the beginning of compassion is born of truly caring for our thoughts, caring for our hearts and minds, caring from where our thoughts arise, being able to discern what really does lead to sorrow and what leads to healing and to love. See, in the, in the world of our thoughts, so many different tones, sometimes the tones of anger and jealousy and judgment, sometimes the tones of loving kindness, of patience. Some of our thoughts are so repetitive. We've been there so many thousands of times. And sometimes within those, those grooves, we see actually they don't lead to freedom. They don't lead to compassion. They're painful. It's interesting, sometimes when we're faced with the painfulness at times in our own minds and hearts, we're so tempted to blame, just as we're tempted to blame in the world when we meet suffering. You say, it's your fault or it's my fault. I think sometimes blame 
seems like a way out of helplessness. You know, when we're blaming, we don't feel so helpless. You know, we feel like we've got something to do. We do have something to do. We have something blamed to do. I think we don't always see that blame kind of is so disconnecting. Blame takes us a step away from compassion and from wise responsiveness. When we're so busy in the your fault, my fault story, we don't see in the busyness of that blame that this sometimes is just suffering. I think our capacity to hold and to meet and to embrace suffering without blame is actually the beginning of compassion. I mean, anger without compassion turns into blame. And yet sometimes there is anger, you know. Sometimes anger is really provoked by the injustice or the oppression or the unnecessary suffering that we meet in the world. But when anger is balanced with compassion, it becomes wise action, which is very different than blame. I think a major part of understanding compassion and finding a capacity to forgive is really understanding how everything in this world arises out of conditions. A few years ago I was in the States and I was going to teach and it had been arranged that a, a taxi was going to pick me up from my hotel and I was waiting outside on the pavement for this taxi to come and I saw my taxi cab coming because I knew its number and this other taxi that had been kind of lurking around the parking lot, um, you know, decided to cut in on the act, and he cut in in front of my taxi. It decided I was going to go with him. And, of course, my taxi driver, you know, it's a long, convoluted story. My taxi driver got upset, and he got out of his taxi, and this other cut-in taxi driver got out of his taxi. And in moments, they started fighting over my suitcase. <laughs> and like I was completely, you know, non-existent in this whole exchange. It was about like, who was going to get my suitcase into their taxi cab? And what started out as kind of an unpleasant tussle actually still ended up with them rolling around on the ground <laughs> with my suitcase in between them, flopping blows. Until the hotel staff came out and broke up this really awful fight in which there was a lot of racist abuse being exchanged and cursing. Anyway, at the end, I got in my designated taxi with my slightly beaten up taxi driver. And he started telling me this, his life story for the rest of the trip. <laughs> And it was really sad, you know? I mean, he just told you know, he just told me this whole story about, you know, how his things were always going wrong for him and how they'd always gone wrong for him and, you know, how they always were going to go wrong for him because he didn't have the 
right kind of, you know, education. He didn't have the right kind of advantages. So he was always going to be stuck in this crummy job, and his father was stuck in this crummy job. And I thought, you know, where does it begin? Like, where is the beginning of our own lineages? of self-hatred or self-condemnation or the things that we judge in ourselves that we blame ourselves for. Where is the beginning of that lineage? It's, it's like often it begins before we were even born, doesn't it? I mean, I, you know, part of my practice certainly in life has been really learning to um, be patient be patient. Uh, I used to be a very impatient person. Um, and if I thought I was impatient, I just need to look at my father. You know, like he was like really impatient. And then when he talks about his father, like his father was like the, you know, like the, the essence of <laughs> impatience. You know, and I sort of see this lineage of conditions, this kind of inheritance, this legacy of conditions, and really, who is to blame? Where is the beginning of our anger? Where is the beginning of our fear? Where is the beginning of our self-consciousness? Who is to blame? All things arise from conditions and in truth, we don't always nurture. Uh, we, we're not always in control of those conditions. But our capacity to nurture compassion, our capacity to, to cultivate investigation, to cultivate reflection, awareness, these two are conditions that are part of the fabric of breaking the lineages. They're part of the fabric of breaking the traditions of hatred, of fear, of condemnation, of resentment, of jealousy. In fact, we see everything that we do in meditation is essentially is cultivating the conditions that give rise to loving-kindness, to compassion, to understanding. It's never, it's never helpful to blame ourselves for not being compassionate. This is another form of self-hatred. But what we can do is to incline our minds, our hearts, over and over again towards compassion to hold the unshakable intention to see into the roots of suffering. So really, we make compassion then into a verb, a willingness to see into the roots of suffering. I think it's absurd to think of compassion as some kind of lucky accident that we happen to run into now and again. And it's much more important to learn that we can incline our hearts and minds towards understanding the suffering of the moment to meet that. And they are, let's face it, countless moments of suffering that we are asked to meet. 
look at our bodies. You know the fragile natures of our bodies, the fragile nature of other people's bodies, the pain, the aging, the sickness. You know, I, I, you know, I have this definition definition of aging where, you know, where I think aging means that the periods of time where everything in your body works well at the same time, they get shorter and shorter. You know, it doesn't happen very often. You know, a few years ago, I was found myself going, I was going, I'm going to get all this dental treatment, you know. And I, you know, I said, yeah, my dentist, you know, that was happening with my teeth, you know. And he said, he, you know, he told me, he said, it's a design fault. He said, he said, your teeth think you should be dead. <laughs> a philosopher for a dentist, you know. You think of the suffering sometimes we meet in our hearts, you know, the suffering, despair, frustration, of helplessness, and so often our first response is, we want to fix it, we want to get rid of it, we want to make it go away. And at times we discover that we can dive beneath that, and we can find the patience and the steadiness and the balance and the compassion to hold this body as it is know when we're layering suffering upon upon pain. The Buddha once says, if you want to know what compassion is, look into the eyes of a mother as she cradles her fevered child. I mean, sometimes, you know, how do we cradle the suffering that we meet in ourselves or that we meet in others? But sometimes it's easier to find compassion for our bodies than for our minds. You know, when we get lost in storms of confusion or storms of rage or judgment or jealousy, or when we meet other people's minds that sometimes feel so unskillful or prejudiced or intolerant, it's so much easier to follow the path of blame than the path of compassion. You know, we tell ourselves, I should know better, I should be different, and you certainly should be a lot different. Mm. Our minds get so strategic about fixing and improving ourselves and so strategic about fixing others as if, you know, we have this remarkable expectation that we are in control of our minds. I mean, you know, if any of you have had a bad day on this retreat, probably nobody has, but if you've any of you have had a bad day in this retreat, you know, I mean, you didn't decide to get up in the morning, did you, and decide, and, and think, oh, you know, this is a really good day to be depressed, or this is a really, you know, today I'm really going to be uptight, or and I'm really going to be lost. Of course not. And is this illusion we have that somehow we are in control of this mind? Doesn't mean that we're out of control. It doesn't mean that not being in control doesn't mean that we're out of control. Sometimes with our minds, I think we're asked to dive very deeply 
to find the forgiveness, forgiveness and tolerance and acceptance for this mind. And if we want to know what compassion looks like, look at what it is to hold the fevered mind. All of us meet at times the suffering that comes with change, with separation, when those that we care for perhaps die, or where we face loss, we face disconnection at times. Very often change is something very hard for us to welcome, <coughs> to embrace, and nobody asks us to feel delighted in the face of change or in the face of loss. Sometimes we lose the kind of state, even, you know, on other levels, we lose, you know, the wonderful states of experience we cherished and delighted in. And it asks for boundless warmth and compassion to really embrace the suffering of change. We're not in control, but we're also not out of control because we can stay present, we can stay connected. We see we can turn away from, and that's usually more, much more suffering is involved in turning away from suffering than in turning towards it. There's a Tibetan prayer that says, Grant that I may be given appropriate difficulties, that my heart may awaken and my path of compassion be fulfilled. To demand of ourselves that we hold all suffering in a compassionate heart is really too big a demand. To demand of ourselves that we end all suffering is too big a demand. But what about just this moment? How we meet the painfulness of confusion or how we meet the person who seems so insensitive, how we meet the images of loss, of mourning we see in our media, how we listen to a siren in the distance, can we meet just that one moment with the willingness to incline our hearts and minds towards compassion? And each time we do that, compassion grows. And we learn to let go of the impatience and the blame and the disconnection. We also learn to stop being a cause of suffering and more and more have confidence that we can be a cause of healing. I think one of the very powerful elements of compassion is the quality of empathy, the capacity to place ourselves in the lives and in the bodies and in the minds and hearts of another and to deeply sense the pain and the sorrow of their experience. It is why compassion is often called our capacity to listen to the cries of the world 
or in Pali, the word for compassion, means a heart that quivers in response to suffering. And to understand empathy, to know empathy, certainly we are always being asked to pause, to be still, to listen, to marry empathy with equally qualities of equanimity inwardly. When there is empathy without equanimity, we are often just overwhelmed and then disconnected. Our capacity to listen is what awakens compassion. I'd like to end with a... I'd like to read you a poem called Kindness. It says, before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment, like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride thinking the bus will never stop, the passengers eating maize and chicken will stare at the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness is the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow is the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore, only kindness that ties your shoes and send you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread. Only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere, like a shadow or a friend. This is a cup of moments. <coughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.